Now you can blame me. Okay. Um, good morning. I need to know if there are any, anybody um, watching any football this time of year. Any of you football fans? Anybody watched the last round of playoffs? Did you see the rant? You know what I'm talking about? The rant? Uh, if, you didn't, if you're not a football fan, you don't live with football fans, then let me clue you in on what I'm talking about. This is a, an outstanding defensive back for um, the Seahawks named Richard Sherman made a game-saving defensive play for his team, and then they interviewed him. And this is what he said. Okay, just one time is fine. You can, <laughs> once, once is enough. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's been fascinating to read about this. Um, and it's interesting, our culture, especially our sports, sports culture, we don't know what to think about this. Okay? We, we don't know whether this was vice or virtue. We really don't. Um, For an athlete to be cocky, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Uh, his agent anticipates, there's a uh, CNN article, Sherman's agent says that interest in his client has boomed since the remarks. Uh, he's anticipating maybe up to $5 million of endorsements coming in, not because of the great play, but because of the rant. He says things like, uh, I think he's more likable. <laughs> um, people love this. The brand managers love this. He says, I talked to brand managers this week, and they're fired up. They love it. They say, this is real. This is true. We finally have a player who is willing to speak his mind. There's been no shortage of players willing to speak their mind. But... Um, they agree that advertisers are more likely to be attracted by his new celebrity than scared off by the controversy. Um, now, now, Richard Sherman, to his credit, um, has come out and, and said that it was immature what he said and that he was caught up in the moment and that he should not have dissed another player like he did uh, the outstanding wide receiver uh, Crabtree that he bashed in that interview. But what's interesting is it's like it's not even on his radar whether it was okay for him to self-aggrandize, self-exalt, self-promote, declare himself to be the greatest. That's not even the question. Okay? The question is, in his mind is, I probably shouldn't have said anything bad about the other guy. Um, and so we seem confused. Is this kind of brashness, is this kind of... Muhammad Ali-esque, I am the greatest, is that okay? Is it okay if maybe you are the greatest? Um, today, today, I think we're going to see without question that Jesus is not 
confused about shameless self-exaltation. The scriptures put it in the category of pride, maybe arrogance. And Jesus says it will destroy you. Jesus says that pride, unchecked, can drag good church folk, even good church folk, down to hell. And the reality of it is, maybe not quite as uh, unabashed as Richard Sherman, and we don't get a platform like a national TV interview to declare it, but we all struggle with pride. Okay? It stalks us all. There's some fascinating studies. ABC News reported the good news. They say, uh, if you're like most people, you're way above average <laughs> at almost everything. Psychologists actually have a category for it. They call it the state of illusory superiority. It's also called the Lake Wobegon effect, where all the children are above average. Okay, that's the idea. It means we tend to inflate our positive qualities and abilities, especially in comparison to other people. Uh, research studies are fascinating in this area. They asked a million high school students, a million high school students, how well they get along with their peers. None of the students, zero of the students, rated themselves below average. 60% believed they were in the top 10%. 25% said they were in the top 1%. And you don't have to be real good at statistics to know that there's a problem there, right? One researcher summarized the data this way. He says, it's the great contradiction. The average person believes he's a better person than the average person. Okay. Um, so today we want to listen to what Jesus says in one of his strongest statements that he makes about, about what we should call pride. Just straight up call it pride and arrogance and, and it's in us all. So... If you'll turn to Matthew 23, I'd like to pray for our time in the Word, and then we'll look at it together. Father, have mercy on us, not to see this in those, merely in those sitting around us, but that today your Word would be a mirror for our own souls, because I know this, this is after us. It's, a, it's after me. It's after me now. Um, and Jesus, your words need to haunt us and frighten us and rescue us. And I pray they would. I pray that by the Spirit they would. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. But I'd like to try to get through the entirety of Matthew 23 today. Um, so there'll be a lot of things for you to scratch your head and think about more later. Because I don't have time to delve deeply into all of it. Um, but likely what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 23 happens on his last Tuesday, we're just three days from the cross. Okay. This is um, probably his final public teaching before his death. What Jesus teaches in Matthew 23 may be the teaching that got him killed. Uh, it, it really seems like it's the straw that broke the camel's back with the leaders that he was rebuking and 
he takes him to task in this chapter. Uh, it is, Matthew 23 is the strongest of indictments and warnings against the religious leadership in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes were the professional Bible teachers, right? You can think these were the professors and the pastors. I prefer to think of them as the professors. But you, can, you can do whatever you choose. Um, the Pharisees were not professors or pastors. They're laymen. Isn't that interesting? They're folks like you, okay? The Pharisees. And uh, they loved the Bible and had all kinds of rules to keep people far enough away from the law of Moses that they wouldn't break it. So they had, they had rules that protected Moses' rules. Um, and together, the scribes and Pharisees today are lumped together, and they're treated as religious leaders who oppose and reject Jesus, I think, because of their pride. Um, now, whenever we read these stories of Jesus, I always encourage you to find yourself in the story. It's not just ancient history, it's for today, it's for you. And today you only have two choices. You can be sinless Jesus or the proud Pharisee. Um, let me help you with that. You're not Jesus, okay? Um, so sit under, sit under this teaching. Let it, let it expose what's going on in your heart um, because it's, uh, it's so very important. They're the words, these are words for us. These are words for the church. They're especially words for church leaders. So Matthew 23, starting in verse 1, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. So Jesus says, do as they say, but not as they do. And even that's a bit of a puzzle because Jesus has not been a fan of their teaching. Whenever he debates the Pharisees and these other religious leaders, he's fond of saying to them, have you not read the Bible? Um, so when Jesus says, do what they tell you, what, what does he have in mind? And some have said that he's using irony here. You're really not supposed to do what they say. Um, but perhaps the simplest understanding would be that when they get Moses right, when they really do sit in Moses' seat and teach Moses well, do what they say, you should listen. Even a, it's kind of the even a broken clock is right twice a day kind of idea. But he is absolutely clear here that he does not want you to follow their example. And these are stunning words. It'd be like saying, you can go to church and listen to your pastor, but don't follow his example. This is crazy. Um, why would Jesus say that? He says, they, he says it's because they don't practice what they preach. Um, he says, they're hypocrites. Just in this chapter, seven times, Jesus is going to call them hypocrites, pretenders, people who do not practice what they preach. In the next few verses, next two verses, actually, he shows us what that looks like. He says, these Pharisees and these scribes, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, 
but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. So it may be because of all these extra rules they have, these protective rules around the law of Moses, their traditions um, deployed uh, to help protect the law. The rules around the world, rules are like heavy loads on people. Nobody could keep them all. And they do nothing to help the people. It's like they're all rules, no compassion. It's not that they don't do good things. They do good things, Jesus says, but they do them only to be seen by other people. See, they were not for the people, but they so desperately wanted to be before the people. They want to be important. They want to be esteemed on the one hand. But caring for people and having compassion for them on the other hand, those are like mutually exclusive ideas. If you want to impress people, you can't have compassion for them. Pride, self-exaltation, and concern is the great enemy of love. Matt Woodley tells a story about a lady named Helen Rosevere. She was a medical missionary in Africa, and she was the only doctor at that time in a large hospital. And there were constant interruptions and shortages. She was becoming increasingly impatient and irritable with everyone around her. Finally, one of the African pastors insisted, Helen, please come with me. And he drove Helen to his humble little house and told her that she was going to have a retreat, two days of silence and solitude. She was to pray until her attitude adjusted, and all night and the next day she struggled, she prayed, but her prayers seemed to bounce off the ceiling. Late on Sunday night, she sat beside the pastor around a little campfire, and humbly, almost desperately, she confessed that she was stuck. And with his bare toe, he made a line in the dirt. And he said, um, Helen, that is the problem. There is too much I in your service. He gave her a suggestion. I have noticed, he said, that quite often you take a coffee break and hold the hot coffee in your hands waiting for it to cool. And then he drew a line like the first one across that, making a cross. He said, Helen, from now on, as the coffee cools, ask God, Lord, cross out the eye and make me more like you. And in the dust of that African ground where a cross had formed, Helen Rosevere learned the master principle of Jesus. Freedom comes through service, and service comes by releasing our ego and our pride. They did their deeds in order to be seen, and Jesus now gives examples They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries like Bible memory packs. They did their phylacteries broad and their fringes, which were used to remind them of the commandments, long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace, being called rabbi by others. They make sure everyone can see how spiritual they are. Um, you know, these large phylacteries and fringes would be the equivalent of somebody 
somebody who brings their Greek New Testament to your small group, okay, and their journal, also in Greek, and they make sure, this is the problem, it's not a problem to bring your Greek New Testament in your Greek journal, although it's kind of freakish that you're journaling in Greek, unless you're Greek. Um, the problem is that then they, they want everyone to know, well, in the Greek. They love the places of honor. They love the best seats in worship. So, well, you, you guys always sit down here. Is that just joiners are really getting a lot out of this one this morning? You'll have to tell Matt and Jerry Ann about, about this one. They love to be greeted as rabbi. Rabbi it just means teacher, but it. it literally means my master or my great one. Wouldn't that be cool? People who greet you and, hey, my great one. Wouldn't that be nice on a, out in public? They love this stuff. They live for this stuff. Again, it's like somebody, when, when one of the people in your small group has their PhD and when they come to small group, they make you call them Dr. Smith even though you know they're Fred, okay? <laughs> It'd be like me, me making the elders call me Reverend Trotter, you know? I don't do that, and if I tried, they wouldn't. Um, there's no hope of that. But you get the sense, right? They love to be esteemed. They want people, they sign their name up on study, serve big, red ink. Look at what I did. Two-year-olds <laughs> took them on. They're like Andre Agassi used to be. Image is everything. You ever do that? You ever do something around the church and hope somebody notices? Do you ever, let me flip it around the other way, do you ever get passed over and somebody gets noticed and it bothers you? Parents come into the class that you're serving in and they thank the other teacher? Jesus is warning us, do not be like these men. Do not self-exalt. Do not showboat. And, and he, he warns us too here in the next few verses, not only not to aspire to this, but not to, not to put other people in this place. He says, you, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers. It's a level playing field here. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Right away we start reading this, we probably need to deal with it. Does this literally mean that children shouldn't call their dad father? 
Or they shouldn't call their teacher, teacher. Or if we span up, they shouldn't call their pastor, pastor. Um, it doesn't seem to be just about the titles. Because Paul will later refer to himself saying, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So it's about more than titles. It seems to be about our aspirations that lie behind the titles and the giving of those titles. We're not supposed to aspire to those exalted places and the accompanying titles. Rabbi, teacher, father, instructor, pastor, doctor. And don't put others in that place as your exalted teacher because you already have an exalted teacher. It's Jesus. But it is worth thinking through, as Christian leaders, how we use titles. Um, it's funny. Uh, first Sunday at North Wake, right? And there are a few of you who remember this. The bull, in the bulletin, this is how I was introduced the first Sunday. The good Reverend Dr. Larry Trotter. I am not making this up. Uh, it was a joke gone bad that got left in the bulletin. But it raises the question, when would it ever be appropriate to call me, address me like that? Well, the answer is never, because I don't have a doctorate, all right? And the whole good part is somewhat suspect, too. But um, I would say titles are appropriate when they are for the good, for instance, in the classroom, those of you who teach at seminary, when it's for the good of the student. Uh, when it allows the student, for instance, or the congregant, someone who calls me pastor, to show a modicum of appropriate respect, I think it's acceptable, perhaps, in those cases. But when it's used, when I deploy it to puff me up or to exalt me, that I need to be introduced and presented by this title because I deserve it and I, 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 I when it's about me, then I think Jesus' warning probably needs to be heard and taken more literally about titles than we think it does. Pastoralatry can be a problem, especially in our day, um, where pastors are often celebrities. They have, they're on TV, or they write lots of books, or they speak at big conferences. Now, by God's kindness, this is very rare here. Um, for good reason. Um, But every once in a while, somebody notices that their favorite teacher isn't speaking on Sunday, so they don't come. And I wonder if that's a lot of leaning towards exactly what Jesus is saying you better not do to people is put them on a pedestal in Jesus' place. Don't aspire to be a celebrity. Don't put people on that pedestal. Jesus puts his point really plainly in the next two verses. These are the most important two verses in the whole chapter. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be 
exalted. See, it's a whole new paradigm. The greatest are to serve. It's inconceivable, right? The greatest are to serve. We are not to self-exalt. We leave that to God. We are to pursue humility through service to others. And if we do not, Jesus says we face God's humiliation one day, even his judgment. And Jesus is going to say later on that our pride, if it's unchecked and has full reign with us, can drag us down to hell. Now, I imagine as Jesus teaches us, there must have been some scribes and Pharisees in the crowd because Jesus now turns to address them directly with a series of seven shocking woes. I want you to just hear them this morning. So if you'll just listen, just listen as they're read to us, okay? Thank you. 
blood of righteous Abel, through the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Wow. Jesus is ticked. I've never heard Jesus call people so many names in such a short span of time. You, you'd wash your kid's mouth out with soap if they tried that. Um, imagine what it was like for these religious leaders in the community to be in front of a crowd and have Jesus point them out and blast them like this. There are seven woes you heard read. There's a thread that runs through them all, I think, I think it is their pride. And I'd like to see if I can interconnect that through the majority of them for us in the time uh, that we have left. Let's look at them kind of in pairs. Go back to the very first one in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Wow. Okay. Jesus is accusing the Bible profs and the committed Bible students of false teaching such that it slams the door of heaven in people's faces. What were they teaching? I think what they were teaching was the rejection of Jesus. You remember how when Jesus would teach, they would debate him. And they would try to trap him. They even ascribed his works to demons. Back in chapter 12 of Matthew, when the Pharisees heard about Jesus' miracles, they said, this is how they explained it, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And you get a sense that it was their pride, their spiritual pride that took them there. They love to be the great teachers, but people flock to Jesus and says, wow, this is teaching with authority. They love to be seen as spiritual leaders, but the great crowds were gathering around Jesus. They wanted to be seen as holy, but Jesus, as we hear, he rebukes them as hypocrites. Their pride would not let them repent. And the humblest thing in the world is to become a follower of Jesus because you have to repent of your sin and admit you've been on the wrong path. So in their stubborn pride, they reject Jesus. They slam the door of the kingdom of heaven in the face of their disciples. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Pity the fate that awaits those whose pride turns people from Jesus. If you're a teacher at North Wake, our mantra has to be that of John the Baptist who said of Jesus, He must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. We are making followers of Jesus, not fans of me. 
In their pride, they were teaching the people to reject Jesus. Here's the next two woes. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, that's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it, God. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So the religious leaders evidently were in the unenviable business of sorting out which oaths were binding and which oaths were not. Now, right on its face, isn't it a problem to have a non-binding oath? Isn't that a problem? It speaks of them willing to pass along an endorsement on a breach of integrity. In addition, they're making these calls on misplaced priority. They value the gold more than the temple that makes the gold sacred. They value the gift more than the altar that makes the gift sacred. It seems like they have a misplaced center that something other than honoring God is determining what they do and what they don't need to do, what's binding and what's not. Uh, They are majoring on the minors. And it's interesting that they focus on the gold and they focus on the gifts. And I wonder if there might be, as a backdrop to those decisions, some greed. That somehow there was, a, there was greed involved in those particular things. And of course, the backdrop to greed is always pride. It's wanting for me, more and more for me. The second couplet that goes with this helps us kind of sharpen it a little bit. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Again, like the previous woe, we have a majoring in the minors, a misplacing of priorities, a loss of the center. They are straining out gnats and then swallowing camels. Jesus is so vivid. Why would they do that? My my guess is because they can manage gnats. Tithing garden spices was something they could do. It's something they could control. Uh, I'm told that every year there's a world puzzle championship. 2012, it was held in Croatia. There were 145 contestants from 26 countries. According to Time magazine, these are the connoisseurs of puzzles. They eat, dream, and on rare occasions when they sleep, Dream about puzzles full-time. 
They are the true fanatics and geniuses of the puzzle world. The article in Time Magazine says that hundreds of millions of people around the world do crossword puzzles, play Sudoku, or participate in puzzles on their computers, phones, tablets. Why are puzzles so popular? This is interesting. Why do people like puzzles? And there's a guy who's actually a crossword editor for the New York Times. That's his job. This is what he says. We're faced with problems every day in life, and we almost never get clarity. We jump into the middle of a problem. We carry it through to whatever extent we can and find an answer, and then we just go on to the next thing. But with a human-made puzzle, you have the satisfaction of being completely in control. You start the challenge from the beginning. You move all the way to the end. That's a satisfaction you don't get much in real life. You feel in control, he says, and that's a great feeling. And I can't help but wonder if the Pharisees weren't doing this very thing when they're tithing their garden spices but neglecting mercy and justice and faithfulness. They could do garden spices. Jesus says that the, that the markers of real spirituality for us are not what we can do on our own. Our pride can reduce our faith to what we can manage, what we can control. What matters most becomes what we can do. So I can give 10%. Exactly. I can give 10%. I can have perfect attendance in Sunday school. I cannot drink, not cuss, not chew, not mess with girls that do. I can do those things, right? They are externals. They are minors, And then these become the markers of real spirituality for us. If you do the things that I do, then you're spiritual. But if you do other things, you get outside of those boundaries, then you're, then you're judged. And our debates center around those. So you'll hear conversations about, do I tithe gross or net? Do I tithe cash gifts? Do I tithe Christmas presents? Do I tithe garden produce? It can get crazy because we are working on the focusing on the minors. Jesus says, don't ignore those minors. Just don't make them the majors. Don't make them the big deal. Instead, what Micah says is the majors. He has told you, O oh man, what is good God has. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do you reduce your practice of the Christian faith to the things that you know you're good at, things that you can control? Our pride, our desire not to fail, not to need to repent, can redefine the center for us and set us up for a terrible fall. They were teaching falsely people to reject Jesus. They were majoring in the minor things. And in woes 5 and 6, we see that they focused on the externals. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. 
you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We're back, we're back to what Jesus first started warning us about, right? It is making our faith on display for others to see, doing the externals over the internals, appearances over substance. Jesus says this is hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy when our faith becomes, first of all, what others see so that others can see. When it's really, he says, it's more about the inside. It's not about ritual or activity. It's about real heart change. Ravi Zacharias tells a story um, based on a book that follows the Yugoslavian Christian church's suffering under a corrupt church hierarchy. One day in Yugoslavia, back in the day, there was an evangelist by the name of Yaakov who arrived in a village, and he commiserated with an elderly man named Zimmerman on the tragedies he had experienced, talked to him about the love of Christ. Zimmerman abruptly interrupted Yaakov and told him that he wished to have nothing to do with Christianity. He reminded Yaakov of the dreadful history of the church in his town, a history replete with plundering, exploiting, and indeed killing innocent people. He says, my own nephew was killed by them. He rebuffed any effort on Yaakov's part to talk about Christ. He said, they wear those elaborate coats and crosses the Christians do, signifying a heavenly commission, but their evil designs and lives I cannot ignore. Yaakov was looking for an occasion to get Simmerman to change his line of thinking, so he said, Simmerman, can I ask you a question? Suppose I were to steal your coat, put it on, and break into a bank. Suppose further that the police sighted me running in the distance but could not catch up with me. One clue, however, put them onto your track. They recognize your coat. What would you say to them if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into the bank? I would deny it, said Zimmerman. Ah, but we saw your coat, they would say. This analogy quite annoyed Zimmerman, and he ordered Yaakov to leave his home. Yaakov continued to return to the village periodically just to befriend Zimmerman and encourage him and share the love of Christ with him. And finally, one day, Zimmerman asked this question, how does one become a Christian? And Yaakov taught him the simple steps of repentance for sin and trust in the work of Jesus Christ and gently pointed him to the shepherd of his soul. Zimmerman bent his knee on the soil with his head bowed and surrendered his life to Christ, and he rose to his feet, wiping his tears, and he embraced Yaakov, and he said, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens, and he whispered, you wear his coat very well. Do you wear his coat very well? Or the people who know you best who know you on the inside, the people you live with, the people you work with, do they wonder if you just stole it? Do you wear his coat well? Do you repent well? 
Do you clean up the inside? Do you regularly repent of your sin, first to Christ and then to those you've wronged? Is that your pattern? Is your faith mostly about the outside or are you mostly concerned about cleaning the inside first? Well, there's one more woe. I'm going to have to let you read it on your own, but there are two things I want to point out to you in the midst of it. Um, In the midst of it, Jesus makes a remarkable claim to his divinity. He says this. He says, after he pronounces the woe, he says, Therefore, I, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Jesus is the one who has sent the prophets. The ancient prophets were sent by Jesus. It's a claim to be God. And he says, Some of you will kill and crucify, and some will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And with that crucifixion, Jesus is anticipating what awaits him just in a couple of days at the hands of these same leaders. And then he says, he pronounces the most damning of statements here. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus is warning us, Don't be like these leaders who major on minors, the things they can control, who are about the externals, the things that others can see, who self-exalt, who brag, who are proud. Jesus says they really can drag good religious folk like the scribes and Pharisees, even like us, down to hell, he says. Are you like them? Has your pride kept you from facing your hypocrisy and calling it that and repenting of it? Do you regularly repent of your sin? Have you ever repented of your sin and thrown yourself on Christ's grace? There's a great story uh, told about Jonathan Edwards during the Great Awakening. He's presiding over... a prayer meeting of 800 men, and uh, going into that meeting, a woman sent a message asking the men that gathered there to pray for her husband, and the note described a man who had become unloving, prideful, and difficult, and as Edwards read uh, the message in private, he thought perhaps the man would be in this meeting, and so he asked if the man who had been described would raise his hand so the whole assembly could pray for him. And 300 men raised their hands. Has your pride so misshapen your life that you are difficult and loveless in your home, men and women, boys and girls, Should you be raising your hand if that was what I was asking of you this morning? Pride, Jesus warns us, can drag even good religious folk down to hell. We don't want anything to do with it. We want to repent of it. And so this morning, our worship team is going to come lead us in a closing song that is a song of repentance. And what I'd like to do is... Uh, as they start that for us in just a minute, um, if, 
if God is pricking you this morning that you need to repent of your pride, if you would come down and kneel down here as a, as a demonstrative act of humbling yourself, then we'll break out of the song midway and we'll have a chance just to pray for anyone who comes forward for repentance during that time. But when you come, and I hope you will, I hope you'll be willing to take that very humbling step this morning. I want you to listen and remind you of who it is who waits for you. Let me back up to my slides if I could. Guys, I've got one more slide there. It says this. Jesus says in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. You were too proud, Jesus is saying. Are you willing this morning? Don't let your pride keep you from renouncing your pride and welcoming Jesus' care for you. So as the team leads us, I want to encourage you to make your way down here and we'll break out in just a second and have prayer for anyone who comes forward and kneels at the front. Let's stand and worship Christ together.